From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. This year, for the first time since 2006, the California Department of Natural Resources announced that the 29 public water agencies that serve the nation's most populous state would all be receiving 100% of the water they have requested. And what's happening in California right now is broadly reflective of what's happening across the West, where a very wet winter has resulted in fuller reservoirs and thicker snowpacks. And you might think that water managers would be really excited about this. But the truth is that we're really not out of the woods. It would likely take many winters, just like the one we just had, to pull this region of the country out of the hydrological deficits that have been building up in recent years. Also, what we are coming to see is that the climatological models that years ago began predicting longer and more extreme droughts are proving to be quite accurate, which means that it's more likely than not that we're in for more years of very hot and very dry weather and the water scarcity that comes with that. So what do we do about all of this? There's 80 million people living in the 11 states that comprise the American West, and this area of the world is growing in popularity every year. It's also one of the most agriculturally productive places in the world, and all of those farms need water. Joining us today to talk about the innovations that might bring that water to an increasingly dry West is Niusha Ajami. She's a water expert at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and a hydrologist who specializes in sustainable water resource management. Niusha Ajami, welcome. Thanks for having me. Niusha, it's summertime and I'm sitting here in Utah looking at a mountain horizon that's still quite snow covered, which is really nice to see. Um, in California, several of the largest reservoirs are near 100% capacity. Uh, happy days are here again, right? <laughs> yes, for now. <laughs> for now. For now is important. You and others have said that we, we can be happy about all of this, but we really shouldn't take our eye off the ball when it comes to long-term water resources. Absolutely. I think... Uh, it's important to remember that the next drought is just around the corner, so we should be very thoughtful in the way we use water and uh, be mindful of what we can do to save as much as we can in case we will have another long, dry drought coming to us next year or the year after that. And that is in the cards, right? I mean, is, is this hard to communicate at times like this when we do have a lot of water? It's almost like... We never hope for drought, but during drought, we have an easier time communicating to people these long-term needs, right? Absolutely. I think there are two things here. One is, you know, we are so used to thinking about drought as an occasional thing that happens that we have to sort of respond to, but we'll go away and we can go back to business as usual, which is not what we have been experiencing in the past 20 years, at least. Uh, what we see is episodic wet periods and long, dry drought uh, periods that we have to deal with. And we have to deal with water shortages and, uh, you know, lower reservoir levels, lower snowpack. So, um, so we have to change that mindset and be able to think, you know, wet years when they are here, that's when we should be jumping up and down and saving as much as we can, making sure we sort of strategize around how we want to use that water 
and dry years are actually our normal years that we have to be really mindful and um, and be thoughtful in the way we are we use our water. You mentioned saving as much as we can. That's sort of the whole point of having reservoirs. We're not building a whole lot of more reservoirs, which I would think would be like one of the primary strategies for dealing with this, right? If we're going to have more longer periods of drought, more periodic periods, like small, shorter periodic part periods, like pluvial periods, having more storage would be ideal. What's getting in the way of digging more holes? Building more reservoirs, yes. Yeah. So basically we have built all the great, I mean, we, res, you know, the places you can build reservoirs are very special. You have to have, find the right valley. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to build it in a location that requires tons of concrete or tons of earth material to build. The second thing is we have actually come uh, down to learn that these reservoirs have serious uh, ecosystem impacts be sort of that 20th century model of build reservoirs and save water as much as you can. It's sort of transitioning to the fact that we have to release more water. We have to make sure we can protect the ecosystem. We have to make sure the rivers have water in them. So that model doesn't really work as well as we taught 100 years ago. Let's talk about the groundwater because we can't get an eyeball down there very easily. It's hard to know what's going on underground, harder even than it is to know what's going on in in the mountains and in our reservoirs and our streams and our rivers. But what do we know? We, we do know it's being depleted. Yes, actually, we now have a lot of new tools, satellite data, drone data, and uh, some of the other new technologies that are out there that can help us to kind of X-ray groundwater and see what is going on, looking at the movement of the uh, of the uh, earth and see how much water is there, and um, we have a lot more data than we used to. And is that data telling us right now that our groundwater is depleted and at risk? Yes. So there are different ways of looking at this. One is. In some areas in the West, you see subsidence. Is it that's when, you know, the the groundwater the groundwater is sort of like fills a lot of the porous spaces underground. So when we take the water out, what happens is think about the sponge in your um, in your sink. As you push the water out, right, start sinking, and one way to prevent that sinking or actually make sure it doesn't become permanent is to actually recharge it with more water to make sure we can keep those spaces and let the water sort of be stored there. And also it's helping us to understand where are the good places to put water in because not every soil is made to you know, keep, uh, allow water to flow and move down and make it to the reservoirs that we have on the ground. So this is all why we need to keep thinking about and talking about moving towards some long-term solutions, even in great years like this, it's maybe especially in good water years like this. Um, one of those potential solutions, especially in California, is desalination. Uh, in October, California regulators unanimously approved a $140 million desalination plant uh, this is, I understand, it was the first desal plant to get approved since 2019. So can we just sort of unpack 
first and foremost, how desalination actually works? Yes, absolutely. So um, it's the technology that purifies water. So um, there are membranes, um, semi-permeable membranes that we push water through it. And through that pressure, we take all the impurities out of the water. And what comes down to the other side is um, water molecules that are clean. And there are many, many layers of these uh, semi-permeable membranes and it basically takes everything out from the water but this is not certainly the cheapest way to get water this is one of the rubs on desalination is it's pretty expensive absolutely so uh, the most expensive one is when you um, desalinate uh, seawater a lot of things in there so and we need a lot of and it's quite salty um, so we need a lot of energy to take that salt out and uh, generate purified water. So desalination can be a quite energy intensive and hence carbon intensive process. So, um, so yes, it's not a cheap and uh, process, and it it has a lot of it's it has its own environmental footprints. Yeah, you're solving one problem, but then creating another somewhere else. Yes, exactly. There are also environmental, beyond just the carbon, environmental concerns and and social justice concerns as well. Can you speak a little bit to those challenges? Absolutely. So um, remember, if we are thinking about seawater desalination, taking water out of the sea or ocean, right? Lots of um, uh, marine ecosystem there that needs to be protected. So in areas that we put the desalination plants there, we have to put a lot of... Um, uh, sort of new technologies or new ways of grabbing water or extracting water from this environment. And the more stringent stringent those requirements are, for example, there are some that says you have to take water from underground and take it out. The second thing is no one wants a desalination plant next to their home in their community. So often what you see is there's a lot of trade-off between where they end up being located and how it can impact communities that live around that area. And also, it's not a, you know, desalination plants, especially the large ones, have a lot of uh, land footprint. So you have to have a lot of space to put these things there. So um, so it it is a difficult thing to kind of permit, especially on the large side, larger side of these uh, facilities. So we're probably not going to have desalination be the primary way that water is obtained in California anytime soon. But do you do you see it as a growing method of uh, providing water, particularly? Obviously, California, Oregon, Washington, who have access to, you know, un, you know, unlimited uh, salt water close by. I would say again, it's definitely something that uh, will become part of different communities' portfolio, depending on how much you know the, the resources that's available to them and the willingness of that community to invest in this. Um, what you see often in uh, some of these Western states is that the water use, uh, it's quite high. So every drought that we have, the water use have been dropping, um, which is great per capita water use. And population growth 
growth actually has shown that has doesn't really has not been impacting water use overall water use in the West because there's so much inefficiency in the system. And every one of these droughts have helped us to kind of recover some of those inefficiencies. So, so we can grow without using more water just by addressing the inefficiencies in the system. That's what we have been doing in the past 20, 30 years. Um, you know, communities like, such as, for example, Los Angeles um, and the Southern California, actually their population in some areas have doubled, but their water use have been steady for the past 40, 50 years. You know, we have better codes and um, and standards. We have more efficient appliances and fixtures. So, and every one of these droughts have changed some of the behavior that people have. We are changing our outdoor water use. So all these things cumulatively have been helping us to meet our demand without necessarily needing to build a lot of extra water supply. Let's move away from California for a moment here, move more into the internal part of the West. Some lawmakers in Utah would like to bring the ocean to them. They've (laughs) suggested a pipeline that would bring ocean water into this landlocked state, not for drinking or agriculture, but to replenish the Great Salt Lake. Uh, I can viscerally remember the first time that I heard this idea. I'm wondering if you can do and what your reaction to this scheme was. Look, I, I think a couple of things. If California cannot build a desalination plant um, <laughs> to meet uh, their potential need for the future, I doubt people would be convinced to build one to send the water over the Rockies to Utah. It's a very expensive um, prospect, and it requires a lot of energy um, end-to-end. So um, I would be very surprised if we built one of those pipelines, but I'm not sure if we will ever have that pipeline, but you never know. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the Great Salt Lake has shrunk considerably in recent years. It got a bit of a boost this year, but it's still really near a record historic low. What is the best possible solution you see for addressing the shrinking Salt Lake? Actually, many lakes are shrinking across the world. Just recently, there was a study that came out that was uh, highlighting that issue. It's, you know, it's in, it's happening due to various reasons. One is obviously the most important one is um poor water management overall, and some of the, you know, conventional water management um, solutions that had been in place forever and ever, and we are still insisting to perpetuate them into the future. In addition to the fact that we we are obviously uh, experiencing climate change. I would say, um, so the cheapest water that we can have is the water that we save um, and That way we can also save the ecosystem and prevent the lake from shrinking. I think another way to look at this is we have a centralized water system in our homes and in our cities. And, you know, the water comes from, you know, a water source. We treat it. We push it through the pipeline. People use it once and leaves. Um, We certainly need to build a circular economy around water by reusing water as many times as we can. And we have all the technologies that are needed. 
You know, sometimes people are not very excited about drinking recycled water, but we actually drink very little of the water that comes through our pipelines. If you think about it, we use a lot of it in flushing toilets and watering outdoor spaces. And if we just take those two pieces out and use recycled water for them, by itself can reduce our water use in some cases by 50 to 70%. There are some increasingly good models for this. Uh, Las Vegas is sort of ahead of the curve on water reuse. I think Phoenix has been demonstrating a lot of this as well. Uh, is Are those the cities to look at right now? Are there others? Yeah, absolutely. So for a centralized system, um, there are great examples out there. So there, there's also Orange County in California that has been doing this for since the 70s. Um, so uh, they take the water, they treat it, they put it underground, and they pull it out later for water supply. I would say the example that people often don't think about is something similar to solar panels on individual homes. We have on-site reuse systems in San Francisco that basically takes the water from your sink, from your um, shower, from your, you know, all the different waters that we use in the home and treats it. And then that water is used for flushing down toilets and using outdoor and irrigating outdoor spaces. And I love that model because it perfectly replicates how we are transitioning in the energy sector, right? bringing a piece of technology to homes that can actually reduce our both our water and energy footprint right where we, where we have it. And um, I think that's the smallest scale. And then as you go up, you can do this in a building, in a neighborhood, in a service area, and, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, regionally. So, um, so I think we should embrace reuse at every scale. You mentioned that the most immediate and cheapest way to protect water resources is simple reductions in water use. I think we can't have that conversation without talking about agriculture that uses something like about 70% of the water in the West. Uh, I'm a pretty ardent believer that a transformation to plant-based proteins that look and taste like animal meat, and then also meats that are constructed with animal tissues, but grown in a lab rather than on a ranch are a nearly inevitable part of our future. Uh, The water cost of these products would be substantially smaller than the water cost of traditional ranching. Are you thinking much about what that transformation might look like uh, in terms of what we might glean with more water? Actually, absolutely. I think I would say I would start again from the waste part of agriculture. Um, A lot of the products and crops that we grow don't make it to the market. So how can we reduce that inefficiency in the system? Can by itself reduce our water and energy and uh, footprint? Um, A lot of the food that makes it to our homes or our communities gets wasted. How can we reduce that? That by itself can reduce water and energy footprint. Um, then on top of that goes to our diets and how we can, uh, I don't think we can, we would eliminate um, all the, uh, you know, uh, products that are super water intensive, but we can definitely create a more moderate uh, diet that has doesn't have meat in every, uh, you know, portion of it. 
uh, that by itself can also reduce our need. Um, also, remember, there's another element to water use, which is the water quality. Every water that we use, we degrade its quality, regardless of it's in agriculture or in our homes and communities. So that reduction in water use can also prevent pollution. Um, you know, agriculture can become more efficient. We are still, in some areas, we are still using methodologies that were used, uh, you know, but hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So we have to sort of rethink how we can become more efficient in the way we use water in our land and we grow food. And also remember, energy sector uses a lot of the water, reducing that, and also our cities and communities. You noted that we do a lot of things pretty much the same way we've been doing for a hundred years or longer. Um, that's a lot of inertia. You've said it's going to take a complete mindset change really across our society to reach a future in which the wells haven't run dry and the taps still work. So I'm wondering, as someone who's constantly thinking about the future, what's the future you most often see when you're looking forward maybe 25 or 30 years from now? Are we still just barely scraping by? Are we in really big trouble? Or have we largely figured this out? I would say we have all the technologies that is needed to help us move forward. What we really need right now is leadership, policy change, and change in our management strategies that we have. How can we sort of help people transition from the model that they're so used to, to something that's more sustainable and resilient? Um, can we make sure that we uh, think about what, what we are growing where and how much of it and how can we make this system more efficient and waste less? Um, you know, these mindset changes sometimes, again, can happen by public awareness, uh, such as this conversation you and I were, are having, right? People lessen and potentially, hopefully, they change their way, the way they do things, but also needs to happen at the, um, you know, at the state level, local level, and federal level to kind of change the way we do things. If you think about the energy sector's transition, who would have thought we would have charging stations everywhere? Or every other person, or you know, many people would be considering electric cars or solar panels on people's roofs, right? 40 years ago, I don't think anybody was thinking and um, that this many homes would have solar panels. Now there's such a you know common scene when you go to different locations. So so I think that's what we need. And and are you optimistic? Do you see a future where we do this? I know it's I know it's hard. I mean, you can tell me also if you're if you're like, no, I just don't believe that it's going to happen. That's fine. But I'm, I am wondering because it's it's a it's a long slog to make the changes that we need to make. And I so I'm curious if you think that for, you know, the next generation, the generation after that, we're in a better, a much better place. I am optimistic. I'm an optimistic person. And I really think we can make this happen. Um, I really think some of these droughts that we have been experiencing in recent years have brought water to the forefront of a lot of um, issues that we are dealing at the, especially in the Western states. Um, you know, I'm hoping that we would lead the transition 
Uh, I don't think any of those solutions I mentioned are just Western solutions. I think we have to do that across the board. Um, so I think I'm very optimistic. I'm, and I'm really hoping that we embrace innovation and change. One thing I would say is part of this, as I said, is public awareness. And part of it, part of that process of public awareness is to help people think or understand their impacts, right? Often when you open your tap, water comes out. People don't think about where this water is coming from and where it goes. Helping people understand and connect the dots can help them to be more mindful and thoughtful. We saw that in California, actually, the previous drought that we had, the amount of media coverage we received was uh, significant. And a lot of that actually in a study that we did with my team showed to impact people to voluntarily change their behavior. And a lot of that change actually stick and didn't change, didn't go back. That's Nusha Ajami. She's a water expert at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and a hydrologist who specializes in sustainable water resource management. Nusha, thank you. Thank you for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by public radio listeners like you. So if you're a donor to Utah Public Radio or KCPW in Salt Lake City, we want to thank you. And if you're not, why not? Head over to upr.org and click on the donate link and make sure in the comments you let them know that you're a supporter of this program. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.